and welcome to Christ in Every Word, a podcast of the Concordia Bible Institute housed on the beautiful campus of Concordia University, Wisconsin. This is your opportunity to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the sacred scriptures with me, Dr. Brian German, Associate Professor of Theology here at the University and the Director of the Concordia Bible Institute. We're making our way through the book of Genesis. Christianity in Genesis is what I've been calling this series. If you've been tracking along, we're studying where we see the person and work of Christ and, by extension, our life in him. And so that means something about this old book we call Genesis. It means that these aren't just a bunch of old, ancient Near Eastern texts. It means that they continue to live and move and have their being in the one uh to whom they bear witness, Christ crucified, and also because we live in him, they have something to do with us. And that is why we're taking a look at this, Christianity in Genesis. I think that continues in a rather remarkable way here with Jacob running, um, or at least afraid of Esau, kind of on the run again, running from Laban. Really, we studied this last time. It was time to leave. You know, he served uh, Rachel and Leah. We talked about that. And then last time, Laban's boys get a little upset. Hey, he's got everything that belongs to our father, and this is in a bad spot. And then there was a little bit of a, I don't know, there was a back and forth here uh, between Laban and Jacob. You can listen to that in the last in the last podcast. They make a, They set up stones. They make a witness there. And uh, here we go. Jacob is on the run again. I think this is this this business of Christianity. This is a fascinating text. Um, you know, some of you remember I did a top forty. I almost included Genesis thirty-two. Jacob wrestling with God in that forty. Um, it didn't make the cut, uh, but it was very close. I'll say more about that in a minute. But okay, first things first. Jacob is on the run again. In many ways, this has been a theme, is it not? God's people on the move. And we've probably said plenty of this, but this is, it's Abe saying, leave your homeland. And uh, Adam and Eve are kicked out and Noah's wandering around after the flood. These are just, this is God's people constantly on the move. At the same time, um, the Lord promises to be with them throughout the wilderness of this world, throughout the, the pilgrimage in which we find ourselves. And Jacob's case, uh, fascinatingly, the presence of the Lord with him is particularly grounded. This was the case all along, but you just get some magnificent moments here. It's grounded, for example, in Bethel. This is the dream of the ladder. We talked about that in chapter 28. There's a particular place where God is with me, unlike he is present anywhere else in all of creation. Now, that's a fascinating thing to think about. And this happens to Jacob here again at the beginning of chapter 32. He goes on his way the angels of God meet him. Now, why didn't they meet him in other places? And we know this, right? Don't we have guardian angels and don't we have angels all over the place? Well, there's a particular encounter with angels that Jacob has um, in the at the beginning of 32, and he calls the name of that place Mahanaim, which means camps, plural. Actually, it's a dual. It means two camps. Hebrew has, uh, well, in English we have what? Singular and plural. You have book and you have books. Uh, In Hebrew you have singular, dual, and plural. So you can say book, two books, or books. And this is the dual of camp. So it means two camps. 
And so he, he just said, this is God's camp. It kind of reminds me of Bethel. Here's a particular place where God has met me. And this, of course, is the, this is divine service kind of stuff. It gets us thinking about angels, archangels, all the company of heaven is present at a particular place, location, where God has promised to be, namely where his word and sacraments of Jesus are going forth. Um, and so there we have this festal gathering, to use the language of Hebrews, angels on a heavenly Zion. And so Jacob gives us a little picture of this again. This is a special place. Now, he sent, it's kind of a play on terms. Jacob then sends messengers to Esau. That said, The word for messenger is the exact same as angels. Um, and so it's kind of like this. He sends... Um, he sends this messenger angel, same word. He sends now messengers. He has this experience with angels. He sends messengers to Esau. And then what, what does he say? Well, you know, tell this to Esau. Of course, again, remember this was the Jacob stole the blessing there. He stole the birthright. And so this is, he's been on the right. It's been over 20 years. And uh, I mean, you can just do that with the math when uh, Jacob being with Laban, you can run the numbers and boy, it's been a long time. And so I don't know if you've had uh, fallouts in the family or whatever. It's been, it's been a couple decades. It's been a long time, but yet they're still alive. They're doing their thing. And, and so he sends these messengers with a bunch of stuff. I've got oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants, send all these things. And so he's trying to, uh, He's trying to appease Esau. It's kind of an interesting deal. The response is, well, we went to Esau, and he's going to come meet you, and he's bringing 400 people with him. It's interesting because on the one hand, um, we should say something about how to make amends. Jacob is clever, and he's doing what he has. Luther makes a big deal about making use of the resources that God has given. It's not like we just sit back and say, well, you know, got the headache and so pray to the Lord and don't take any Advil or something like that. Um, Luther's against this idea that we can just sit back and constantly test God to see, you know, how much do you love me here? He's also given us means. He's given us blessings um, to work through. And this is the kind of thing that we see throughout Genesis where faith is very active. And if there can be some reconciliation through the, the things of this world, look, if this appeases things, if this helps, what are these? It's just a bunch of sheep at the end of the day. I mean, this is kind of like, it's like Abe with Abimelech making the oath. You know, here's a bunch of sheep. What? Are, who cares? I mean, give what you, if it's within reason, if it's, if, it's, if it's supporting the marks of the church, then yeah, give to Caesar, whatever. I mean, it doesn't, we want, we want good and godly government, for example. We want we want this order and welfare so that the, the marks of the church are upheld. And so if we can, if we can make amends with the, uh, the bimelecs of our time, if we can use the material goods to actually strengthen relationships in some, in some ways, go for it. Do it. Faith is active looking for these, these things to be done. And so, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, what's, what's the stuff here that Jacob has? It's not going to last. And so we, uses that for his case. And I think Jacob getting afraid is kind of losing sight of the fact that he's in the presence of God's camp. He's, I mean, did he forget all about the angels? He just said, this is, he angels meet him. This is God's camp. 
But he hears Esau's coming with 400 people, and it's like, well, I'm greatly afraid and distressed. At a simple kind of tangible level, you look at the situation, outward appearances don't look very good. 400 people, it looks like you're coming up. I mean, this is the Christian life, too. You're coming up on a fight that's just looking like, I got no chance here. It's beyond me. It's kind of the David and Goliath moment. And yet, Jacob was just given the presence of God in a miraculous way, a very special, uh, magnificent way. And that's the kind of presence that we have every single Sunday morning. Angels, archangels, all the company of heaven. So that even though you go throughout your week and you look at the situation, you say, this is just bigger and beyond me. Um, The Lord has prepared a place for you where none of that can even uh, reach. And there's a rest there. There's a a tranquility and so on that all the pressures and presses of this life can't even even touch. And so I guess in some ways we, we should never lose sight of that. I mean, Jacob, did he lose sight of that? He's greatly afraid and distressed. It makes sense. I mean, but again, only at one level. You have to remember the promises, and that's what we're called to as Christians, clinging to the promises of God that he is indeed with us, no matter how bad the outward appearances seem. So he divides them up. He divides them into two camps. And so if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. I think there's a marvelous picture here of how God's people will be preserved no matter what. Two camps, Mahanaim is is this word for two camps. In many ways, the book of Genesis has given us two camps all along. Cain and Abel, right? Isaac, Ishmael, Jacob, Esau, these brotherly camps. The women too, Sarah, Hagar. Uh, We have two camps all over the place. We have two camps. We have two brothers. We've got two groups of sheep that we talked about, you know, with Laban. We've got two, two. There's twos all over the place. Well, there are twos all over the place because there's only two ways. The Didache, an ancient text, tells us there's only two ways. Way of life and the way of death. There are only two churches, the true church and the false church. And so no wonder you're going to see all these twos in Genesis. In a marvelous way, um, I think this setting apart of two camps is no matter what happens— The church of God will be preserved until the second coming of Christ. That's straight out of the Lutheran confessions. This is what we confess. It's not going anywhere. Even if it looks bad outwardly and one gets destroyed, Jacob says, the other will be left. The other will escape. It will always be preserved. A remnant will remain. This is what we confess. And that will be the case. Second thing. What camp are you? I mean, you can't just take zero camps or make a third camp. There are only two camps, and one leads towards destruction, and the other leads towards life. And that's the sort of thing that you see throughout Genesis. It's the sort of thing you see again with Jacob and Esau. There are only two camps. Well, what happens then in the camp of life, and again, this is why are God's people always tent dwellers. I mean, that's just the, they're not building cities, right? They're building tent camps because uh, they're truly that citi- heaven is their their true home their citizens citizenship is in a much better place they're not growing roots here in this in this earthly life in the one camp what does it look like well jacob has a marvelous uh, you might say high priestly prayer here o god of my father abraham and god of my father isaac o god who said to me this is a, this is a collect this is a straight up uh, collect of the church right here you have your address 
O God of my father, Abraham, God of my father, Isaac, so continuity, same God. And then what? Who said to me? So now you're quoting the Lord's promises back to him. So you're living by the word. You're praying the collect. You're clinging to the promise. You're returning God's word. You're listening to the word. And then also rehearsing. You're living by that word. You're regurgitating. You're read, mark, learn, inwardly digest that word. And you're speaking that word back to the Lord as he loves to hear by the way, which is totally the Christian life. I have given you my word, my promise. I cannot lie or go back on it. Say it to yourself. Say it back to me. And so Jacob does the same. He said, you said, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. So this is in accordance with the good and gracious word of God. And yet there's what? A confession. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. I, poor, miserable sinner, confess unto thee all my sins and iniquities. For with only my staff I have crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me. Now you get the request, so you confess. You have the address, you have the the word, the the, um, imprecation, the the, what? Self-deprecation. You have this um, confession, then you have the request. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother. This particular thing is beyond me but not beyond you. Deliver me from Esau, for I fear him. Come and attack me, the mothers, the children. But you said, notice again, this whole thing is bracketed by God and his word. This is how you pray, by the way. (laughs) What has he said to me? Reflect on that. Pray about that. Begin with that. End with that. I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for a multitude. I mean, how far away from the realization of that promise must Jacob be right now? He's wandering around, he's in the wilderness, he's doing whatever, and it's, and he's on the run, he's constantly on the run, and yet here's the promise, it's going to be magnificent, offspring as the sand of the sea? Yikes. So he stays there that night, and this, uh, we get a, a bigger detail here of, of the present, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 camels, just a whole bunch. And these are all in droves. And he says he wants a space between all of them, almost like waves. These should come in waves. And all of his servants are kind of stationed according to the wave. And so every time that another wave comes, here it is. Here it is again and again. There is some persistence here with Jacob, with his whole business of, so you have the fallout with the family member or whatever, and there is a there is a persistence here. Here's a little something, here's a little something, here's a little something. Insofar as it can appease, can help the situation, who, again, bunch of, what are, what are a bunch of donkeys? Who cares, you know? So um, you'd almost think of maybe somebody writing letters or, Here's another whatever in the mail, or here's a something. Here's another something, so that it's, I might appease him with this present that goes ahead of me. Afterwards, I'll see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Um, whatever you can get your hands on as far as material, earthly resources that might help facilitate this reconciliation, who cares? Do it. And be persistent about it. Be diligent in this. Jacob is is doing what he can in this realm. And he's ultimately hoping that he'll see his face, which is a fascinating, there's a, there's a play on the word face throughout this chapter. The word for face, 
um, is going to be in the word Peniel, the name of the place where Jacob is about to f- wrestle with God because it means face of God. And so Pen, um, th- that Pen part of the word is where you get face from. This is, in some ways, it's kind of a, I love the, the play on words there because it's like, you know, may the Lord make his face shine upon you. The face of the Lord is ultimately the kind of reconciliation that we're after. But in the face-to-face, pun intended, one Christian to another, we should reflect that reconciliation that we have with the face of God shining upon us um, with each other. And so there is a, I think a, the play is to suggest there, to intimate at least, that we have this, the the face of God shining upon us, the reconciliation there, the forgiveness that we have first received, will extend that one to another, face to face. Perhaps I will see him, see his face, this kind of reconciliation then that that flows from the forgiveness first received ourselves. Lots more to say about that, but let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. We'll be back in just a moment to the Concordia Bible Institute podcast. In the meantime, I'd like to have you consider this question. What is most important in higher education? How do you prioritize all the knowledge to be gained at an institution of higher learning? Concordia University, Wisconsin, located on the shores of Lake Michigan in Mequon, Wisconsin, just north of Milwaukee, is an institution that is committed to excellence in learning but at the same time realizes that excellence in itself is insufficient without development in vocation. We believe that God works through our vocations, our callings, in order to serve the needs of those around us. The mission statement of Concordia University puts it this way, Concordia University, Wisconsin is a Lutheran higher education community committed to helping students develop in mind, body, and spirit for service to Christ in the church and the world. You can learn more about the over 70 programs offered at Concordia by visiting the website, www.cuw.edu. And if you're benefiting from our Christ in Every Word podcasts, I encourage you to support this ministry by mentioning it to others and by offering your monetary support. Please consider supporting the Concordia Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org, and clicking on the Contribute page. And now, back to the podcast. there, folks. We are back with our study of Genesis chapter 32. Jacob, afraid of Esau, and then sending him all these presents. And we have the two camps we talked about. We have this, I don't know, uh, anticipation of possible reconciliation between these two brothers. We left off with just, he passed on ahead of him. And he stayed that night in the camp. Um, And so there is this, uh, yeah, what's going to happen next? In verse 22, the same night he rose, took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, crossed the ford of the Jebek. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else they had, and he was left alone. Okay, so we have this, again, the twofold nature of things going on, two camps, two brothers, two Two women in the previous, you know, few chapters, Rachel and Leah. Um, two, two ways, two churches, and now we have two female servants, and the children there, and two wives. Um, 
you get the sense that uh, Jacob now is giving us a picture of something much more personal and intense. He's now alone. I mean, before it was two camps, but now, and, and that may be a more macro picture of just how our Lord's uh, ways go there with the two ways, way of life, way of death, two churches, and so on. Now, within that one true church, you get a look at, at, at the individual wrestling with God. First, loneliness. I mean, that's where it starts. He even, you know, these close, the wives and female servants and children, he even leaves them, and so then he's alone. Um, so the first wrestling is, I guess you, you could say that the wrestling starts already now with the loneliness. Jacob throughout all the running around, I mean, think about some of the treks he, um, he did uh, up north to Laban and so on. How many nights where he was, he was alone. And so already we're getting a, a little sense of, okay, Jacob, as he's alone here, this is something that he's had before. He's, he's been alone quite a bit. And that's also, of course, going to touch home base with the Christian life when we feel like, well, you know, it's just me. But again, the Lord has promised to be with me. So how will that, how can both of those things be true when I feel so lonely and yet the Lord has given his word and promised? So what's that, what's that going to look like? And you get a great picture of what that can look like here, no matter how lonely you feel. Well, what happens? A man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Fascinating. First, we're told it's a man. All right, now, by the end of this, it'll be what you've you've striven with God. So you have this both man and God thing going on, which sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? That somehow Jacob wrestles with a man, and yet he's also wrestling with God. And so Luther was not shy to say he's wrestling with the pre-incarnate Christ. That's how you're able to, how can you even wrestle with, with God? Have you thought about that? Doesn't, don't you need a body? Don't you need something physical or tangible? What is he wrestling with? Isn't God just spirit? And so how is Jacob wrestling with, and I, you could, well, I mean, it's not wrestling with a bear and then it's God, it's a man and then God. And in some ways that man gets us thinking also about Jacob's life too, doesn't it? I mean, Jacob has been wrestling with a particular man. I mean, why not give us a name? Or more detail, Jacob has been wrestling with men or with a particular man, wrestling with an individual, Esau, um, wrestling with Isaac, you might say, for the birthright or wrestling with for the blessing. He's been wrestling with Laban over the goodness, you know, and what to do with the prosperity there. He's been wrestling now with Esau again. In many ways, this man, you know, is, is um, what? Representative of all the wrestling that Jacob has had. He's wrestling with a man. It's in dark. And so he can't quite always see the fact that in the wrestling with these, I don't know, the Esau's and the Laban's out there, that uh, God can be behind it all, as if he's wearing a sort of mask, just to pick up on Luther's uh, teaching on vocation here. Can God be present in these particular struggles, these wrestling matches that I have with these particular people? Can God be behind it all, as we'll soon see here with Jacob? Um uh, pulling off his good and gracious will, even in these moments of struggle. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, which is kind of fascinating, he made himself vulnerable enough, even to the point of of uh, not being able to beat Jacob. He touches his hip socket, and Jacob's hip is put out of joint as he wrestles with him. It's fascinating. I mean, you're strong enough to do Jacob in, aren't you? And yet has made himself vulnerable to be 
captive to to us. How is that? And Luther says he's defeated with his word. The same word that Jacob just prayed about and gave back to God. Hey, this is the word that you gave me. As soon as God hears that word, he is captive. Uh, Luther talks about this quite a bit in his commentary on Genesis 32, that this is how he's defeated and prevailed over. Um, God appears as a dark enemy, and then all of a sudden you give him his word, and it's, okay, you got me. That's all you need to, needed to say. It's like the road to Emmaus when they say, stay with us for it. You know, I gotta, he acted as if he's going farther. I got to get way over there. I got to go. And then they say, stay with us for it is evening. The day is far spent. Okay, you got me. And there were literally, Luke writes, and their words prevailed over him. Totally a pushover. When you give me back my word that I first spoke with you. And yet Jacob's hip is out of joint, isn't it? He does have this, uh, let's say, thorn in the hip that he that he has uh, from here on out. We'll say more about that in a minute. Physical affliction remains, even though we have this encounter with God. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. Jacob said, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. And he said, what is your name? It's kind of interesting that we go to this business of name. He says, Jacob, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Israel is an interesting name. It, the ale part of Israel is God, and, and the yiz, uh, yah, ras, there's been some debate. What does that mean? It's, it's tough um, as far as what that particular word might stem from, but the big deal is it's defined by the narrative here, and that is it means something with struggles with God. Now, of all the names to give his people, he gives what? Struggles with God. This is the kind of relationship I want with you. One of giving a word and promise, and yet there might be physical affliction, or there might be things that are totally in the dark. And yet this is the kind, you wrestle with the ones you love. You know, somebody down the, walking down the street, whatever, that's their life, and you know, but no, if somebody, if my siblings or whatever, my kids, no, 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 we're duking this out. <laughs> You wrestle with the ones that you love. This is the kind of relationship that our Lord wants with his people. And this is what life in the church is all about as we wrestle with his promises. This is, come come, come, come back to me here, speak that word, and let's duke this out. That's the kind of thing. I mean, it's, it's almost like, and Luther does this too, it's the father who, you know, nudges the little two-year-old around just to get him going as far as let's, let's do this wrestling match. And uh, the father just kind of nudges him a little and nudges him a little more and then nudges him. Not that I'd ever be guilty of this, right? Nudge, nudge, nudge. And then they come after you. Come on, let's duke this out. And those nudges are the ones that are hard to understand. This is my loving father, and yet he's given me this little jab in the side. What are you doing? My hip's out of a socket. What are you doing? I have this, this physical ailment that nobody else seems to wrestle with, but I have it. Right? What are you doing? And yet he gives us a new name. Think baptism, of course. He gives us a new name, and that in and of itself is a remarkable blessing. I won't let you go unless you bless me. How about a new name? Um, something that's at the core of, of who you are, the core of your identity. And um, 
And that's the name change here for Israel. In the Lord, you have a brand new name, a name, a personhood, an identity that is grounded in him. This is far more central than whatever the things in the news, gender, whatever, you know, who I am and all this business. The naming of the Lord is at the core of the Christian life, the baptized life. And so he blesses them. Jacob calls the name. So speaking of name, now Jacob exercises this naming business. We get named in baptism, and then we, it's almost like Adam naming the animals. He gets, he gets a, we get a name, and then we reflect that new name stuff in our lives. He now names something, and that is this place. Peniel, for I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. He wanted to see the face of Esau. Well, I'll one-up you here. You've seen the face of God. And that is exactly the person and work of Christ. The early church reflected on where is the glory of God. It's in a living human. It's in, the, it's in Jesus. It's in the Christ. You can see God face to face. Think Moses had, oh, I have to hide you in that cave. Nobody can see my face and live. Well, you can see the face of God and still live in the face of his son. The son of righteousness sent on our behalf. So the sun rises as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel don't eat the sinew of the thigh that's on the hip socket because he touched that socket. So in his life, even though he has this new name, even though he has this blessing, the physical ailment remains. And yet, like Paul's thorn in the side, this thorn in the hip is a constant reminder. Every step, literally, pun intended, of the way, on the way, the truth and the life, that he is um, bearing witness to the kind of relationship that he has with the Lord. People look at that, too. It's also a witness to others. They'll see it. Hey, what's up with the limp? This is the kind of, this is how much my heavenly father loves me. That his power is made perfect in weakness. And that his wisdom is uh, one that the world might think foolish, but it's, it's the wisdom of the cross. It's the wisdom and, uh, and power of God as we reflect the crosses in our own life. My identity is caught up in that. Resol- revolving around that that moment is is every little moment of limping there on out as I take up my cross and follow that cross, the one who leads that way, because that's the way of everlasting life, the resurrection of the body, hip included, <laughs> with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. Great stuff. Genesis chapter 32. We're going to have to call it there, but stay tuned. Tell your family and friends so that they too can learn more about Christianity and Genesis with us. The mission of the Concordia Bible Institute is to provide Christ-centered Bible instruction from distinguished experts who teach Christ in every word of the Old and New Testaments to strengthen faith and spread belief in the one true God. Again, if you benefit from this podcast series, I encourage you to consider supporting the Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org, and clicking on our Contribute page. Until next time, my friends, I'm Dr. Brian German, wishing you all God's blessings in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.